Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ of the Cure. We are continuing the denomination series. Today we are finally getting into the nitty gritty after a break from Thanksgiving. Today we are talking about the Anglican Church. Before we begin, just want to mention three things. First, make sure you listen to parts one and two. They're going to let you know what, what you're dealing with here. Second, Christ of the Cure is subscriber supported. Christ of the Cure only continues on because of patrons. So if you find Christ of the Cure materials to be helpful, to be beneficial, Consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure, and you'll get some perks such as exclusive courses, exclusive notes, and early episodes, things like that. Thirdly, we are talking about denominations here, um, and that means that I'm talking about traditions that are not my own. I am doing the best with you know what I can find and pulling from their sources the best I can, but I want you to just take everything I say and look into it yourself and double check on the two categories of like the sacraments and ecclesiology it should be pretty straightforward um but i'm gonna have to kind of pick and choose right so like on methodists we're gonna be looking at their episcopal structure according to the umc which may differ from other ones so just keep that in mind that you're gonna want to double check stuff that i'm saying um as you go deeper and if you are in the tradition that I'm speaking to, I'm doing my best to represent you guys properly on those broader categories that we talked about in part one. But I do know that it's possible to accidentally misrepresent um, of something of that nature. So just double check my work, uh, which really hopefully you're doing on all the content anyway. And that disclaimer is going to be at the beginning of almost every episode of this series, just because I know that there's going to be things that I missed points that people are going to be like, eh, not quite. I know that. I know that's how it goes, but I am trying. So let's go ahead and get into it. Um, the historical summary of the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church and its offshoot of the Episcopal Church has its foundations in the Protestant Reformation. It actually has a unique relationship with both Catholicism and uh, the, the Reformers. It kind of took influence from the Reformers from the different angles, the Lutherans and the Calvinists. And then later on, there'll be more um, discussions um, as it developed. But during the Reformation, the Church of England separated from the papacy, but a desire to remain as an institution defined by historical continuity, and it is pretty reluctantly Protestant. What I mean is they don't particularly like the designation of Protestant because of what we talked about before, where there's kind of this connotation of you exist solely for the purpose of being in protest, where the Anglican Church really puts a big um, emphasis on historical continuity, especially with apostolic succession. So typically when we're talking about the Anglican Church, it's associated with King Henry VIII. And some people go so far as to say that this is when the Anglican Church began. However, that's not quite true. What we really have with Henry is kind of like the starting point, but really those who followed him uh, would lay out those hallmarks of the Anglican Church, such as the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles of Religion. In fact, King Henry um, abolished the authority of the Pope's jurisdiction in England, but he still remained Catholic until he passed. So rather than have the Pope as the head of England's church, the monarch would be placed at the top of the Episcopalian model of church government. This effectively integrated state and church, which would eventually lead to the Episcopal Church in the United States due to the American Revolution and um, all those factors in terms of separation of church and state. But it was under Henry's son, Edward VI, where we find these principles of the Reformation really becoming part of the church in England. And then you would have Elizabeth I solidifying its Protestant positions. Now, between these, 
there were different trials from semi-Catholics, Puritans, and of course the infamous Catholic Mary Tudor, or often called Bloody Mary, for her persecution of Protestants when she um, headed England. So Elizabeth Mary's Protestant yet not particularly zealous half-sister in 1558 would take the throne and permanently break ties with Rome that Mary Tudor managed to reestablish for a brief period. The history is fascinating. You should go read up on it, but we're not going to go too much into the weeds. But during Elizabeth's reign, Catholics who remained in England sought to depose of Elizabeth and replace her with a Catholic monarch, namely her cousin, Mary Stuart. Yet the movement ultimately failed. So those plots to remove the queen who favored Protestantism really just never took hold. The Catholic priest would even attempt to infiltrate the church with the same goal of removing Elizabeth. But again, ultimately, they would be captured and put to death. Additionally, it was underneath Elizabeth in particular that the Puritan movement would grow substantially, and that will be a movement that will be revisited later on in this series. What you'll find is that in Anglicanism, it is described as a middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism, and how this expression plays out is kind of a spectrum within Anglicanism. You can have more of a Catholic-looking parish versus a more Protestant-looking parish. Uh, so you can lean more towards a Catholic angle of the spectrum, or a more Protestant angle of the spectrum, right? Some would describe it as a more evangelical end of the spectrum. And generally, those spectrums look like high church versus low church, or more emphasis on tradition, right? We talked a little bit about that very briefly in part one, what high church, low church signifies. But the more Catholic um, expression of Anglicanism would be more high church, while the more evangelical would be more low church. The Anglican church logically found ground in America during English colonization, right? We can expect that to occur. And given the Anglican Church's inherent nature as a state church of England, the American Revolution landed a heavy blow on the colonies that remained successfully Anglican in North America. Now, wanting to have nothing to do with the British crown, the choices for Anglicans were to either flee, remain, or face persecution, or turn on the Anglican Church. Um, ultimately, this would lead to the Protestant Episcopal Church in 1783, with the British Archbishop of Canterbury recognizing the American Episcopal Church as legitimate. From here, the Episcopalian Church would be, in essence, the American edition or the American version of the Anglican Church, with the obvious modification in its technical head given the American Constitution's position of state and church relations. The head of the Episcopal Church would be in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, and is the Anglican Church in the United States. So there's still this communion. The Episcopal Church is still Anglican. It is just the Anglican Church as expressed in the United States. Hopefully that description is fair. Um, in this communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, it is united in core documents, doctrines, and worship intercourse with other Anglican churches around the world, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So let's talk about the sources of authority. Now concerning the church's source of authority, you know, what it views as its foundation for its beliefs and practices consists of scripture, tradition, and reason. Scripture is to be understood in light of tradition and reason. And the primary documents in the Anglican Church consist of the Book of Common Prayer and the Articles of Religion, or also called the 39 Articles. The history of both is complex and beyond the scope of our discussion, but those are the primary documents. What could be said, um, or probably should be said, about the Book of Common Prayer is that it's often being depicted as Catholic yet purged of its superstitious elements 
While the articles are Protestant with moderately Calvinistic leanings, the Book of Common Prayer would be revised for the American Episcopal Church and removing prayers that were given to the British monarch. And yet, despite this, the Book of Common Prayer is considered the foundational point of unity for the Anglican and Episcopal Church. The Book of Common Prayer is the basis of liturgy in the Anglican Church, while the articles, or the 39 articles, outline the basic doctrines of the church overall, yet the only binding doctrines on clergy are the ancient creeds, that is the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed specifically. This means that the denomination is diverse beyond these particular creeds. It's kind of that, kind of like that pinnacle expression of unity and essentials, diversity and non-essentials. Philip Schaff speaks of the broader theological position in this manner, quote, the English church leaves room for Catholic and evangelical medieval and modern ideas without an attempt to harmonize them, but her parties are one-sided and differ as widely as separate denominations, though subject to the same bishop and worshiping at the same altar. She is composite and eclectic in her character like the English language. She has more outward uniformity than inward unity. She is fixed in her organic structure, but elastic in doctrinal opinion and has successfully allowed the opposite schools of theology to grow up, which claim to be equally loyal to her genius and institutions. She has lost in England by those periodical separations which followed her great religious movements, nearly one half of the nation she once exclusively controlled, yet she remains to this day the richest and strongest national church in Protestant Christendom, and exercises more power over England than Lutheranism does over Germany or Calvinism over Switzerland and Holland, in the United States, the Protestant Episcopal Church is numerically much smaller than most of the denominations which in England were cast out or voluntarily went out from the established church as nonconformists and dissenters. But she will always occupy a commanding position among the higher classes and in large cities because she represents the noble institutions and literature of the aristocratic, conservative, and venerable Church of England. End quote. And that is from... Philip Schaff's um, The Creeds of Christendom, which is a little bit dated, uh, so but it's a classic. If you've never picked it up, it's got introductions to creeds, confessions, and then, of course, it has the creeds and confessions. And that includes not only ancient creeds, but uh, the 39 Articles, 1689 London Baptist Confession, uh, the Westminster. You're talking uh, Roman creeds. It's just a classic. You can pick it up in three volumes on eBay, or you can get it digitally for free. Anyway, um, this is... Certainly the distinctive of the Episcopalian Church, right? This elasticity and allowance of opinion um, and this unity in core essentials and the Book of Common Prayer. And so that's really a particular distinctive that formally it has that recognition, right? Um, it allows those different opinions reflected in history wherein influences from the Reformed and Lutheran traditions were actually weighed and measured alongside Catholic and even times Puritan notions. So this means that ultimately, one can find many different individuals who partake in the Anglican or Episcopal Church. That includes Calvinists, that includes Arminians, that includes more you know Puritan-minded individuals, that includes more Catholic-leaning individuals. Um, so it's very diverse in that way, yet it's through the Book of Common Prayer that they are all glued together. The interpretation of the 39 articles has a fascinating history with various members of the church representing them a little bit differently. Philip Schaff is helpful again here on this point. He says the theological interpretation of the articles by English writers has been mostly conducted in a controversial rather than historical spirit and accommodated to a particular school of party. 
He says, moderate high churchmen and Arminians who dislike Calvinism represent them as purely Lutheran, Anglo-Catholics and Tractarians who abhor both Lutheranism and Calvinism endeavor to conform them as much as possible to the contemporary decrees of the Council of Trent. Calvinistic and evangelical low churchmen find in them substantially their own creed. Continental historians, both Protestants and Catholics, rank the Church of England among the Reformed churches as distinct from Lutheran, and their articles are found in every collection of Reformed confessions. So this is all to say that whenever we're looking at the 39 articles, first and foremost, they are um, conformed to the ecumenical creeds. There's that unity on those ecumenical creeds. It's Trinitarian through and through. The articles are also uh, distinctly Protestant in terms of the rejection of the errors and abuses of Rome while teaching positively things such as justification by faith. But they're also Augustinian in terms of what they express about salvation, free will and sin and are generally. And I say that because, again, the interpretation is kind of debated, generally considered moderately Calvinistic in terms of their expression on predestination and the Eucharist. Whenever it came to predestination, we'll find like the Methodists will find uh, John Wesley um, abridging or editing the 39 articles to remove what was seemingly Calvinistic about them. And the articles, as one could expect, teach a close union of church and state while the articles are blatantly Episcopalian in their church government. And that's really where most of the thrust seems to be with the Anglican church is their polity or church government. The polity or church government of the Anglican and Episcopal church, as you can guess, is Episcopalian. Of course, I've also talked about them and their general structure prior in part one, but the Episcopal model as held in the Anglican and Episcopal church is stressing its retaining of apostolic succession or a succession of authority and bishops. And so they hold that in common with, say, orthodoxy and with Roman Catholicism, that there's this apostolic succession where since the time of the apostles, their bishops have been ordained through a line, and you can trace back that lineage, right? There's this connection, this historical connection and continuity that is really stressed. And then, of course, the adoption of Episcopalian structure in general, which was a pretty early development in church history. So these are pretty distinctive. This, this idea of having bishops that are uh, linked to the apostles' historical and historical continuity, um, the validity of which we're not going to bother debating here, but that is a distinctive. And because the original Church of England bishops were bishops of the Roman institution, they have that claim to succession through the Roman lineage. Um, and I believe that I, there's this guy on YouTube. I'm sorry, brother. I don't know your name. If you get, if you listen to this, I love your work, by the way, is he goes by the other Paul. He's an Anglican, as I believe, and he's uh, put out some materials, including a lineage of this apostolic succession. Um, he has great stuff in general. I highly recommend it. In terms of what Anglicans believe about the exclusivity of the Episcopal model, it kind of differs, right? Um, whether or not other models are considered valid, right, is debated. Richard Hooker, who is considered a pristine representative of Anglicanism, as far as I can tell, uh, especially during the period of the English Reformation, penned a work called The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. And within this work, Hooker would defend the Episcopalian model while also holding in esteem the validity of other forms of church government. He particularly praises Calvin's ecclesiology um, and, of course, Calvin's model of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Uh, this sentiment is often considered short-lived, but uh, again, in our contemporary setting, the general viewpoint of other models is diverse. 
Um, it just kind of depends. As far as I'm aware, there's no official stance on the validity of other models, um, though I would probably guess that the Episcopalian emphasis on apostolic succession um, places it in a place, at least in terms of how they view their ecclesiology versus others um, in higher rank. So um, as it was at the outset of the Anglican Church, the British monarch serves as the supreme governor of the church, but it's now in more of an honorary sense rather than a practical sense. Underneath the monarch are two provinces, uh, and this is in the Church of England specifically, the southern province and then the northern province. The former province is led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the actual primate or head and minister over the entire church, including the Archbishop of York, who is the one that oversees the northern province. Underneath each archbishop are bishops who um, oversee multiple rectors or priests in a given district, and these rectors or these priests look over an individual parish or congregation. I put up those graphics to kind of help you navigate that, but you can also look up, you know, Anglican Church of England um, Episcopalian model online. I'm sure there's other graphics if mine isn't helpful enough. Uh, the Anglican Church is not limited to Great Britain. This has to be stressed. There are other members of the Anglican Church in more than 165 countries. The communion is organized into provinces and subdivided into dioceses and so on. According to Anglican Communion, which um, you can go to anglicancommunion.org to find out more about that, uh, it says there are 41 provinces, all are in communion or a reciprocal relationship with the See of Canterbury and recognized or rather recognize the Archbishop of Canterbury as the communion's spiritual head. But there is no central authority in the Anglican communion. All of the provinces are autonomous and free to make their own decisions in their own ways, guided by recommendations from the four instruments. That is the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Lambeth Conference, the Primates Meeting and the Anglican consulative council. So the Anglican communion is not controlling the various provinces, but is exactly that. It's kind of the organization of the communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury. In each province, there is a primate over the province, um, just as the Archbishop of Canterbury is the primate over all of England. However, these archbishops do not have authority over primates outside of their provinces. And this includes the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is, again, the primate spiritual head of the communion, but he does not have authority over the primates in the provinces. These provinces are autonomous. Now, moving into the American side of things, using the Episcopal Church USA's model, uh, one source I read said that they were not in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, but whenever I looked at Anglican communion, they, they were, so I don't really know what's going on there, to be honest. Uh, but the structure is the presiding bishop is at the top instead of the British monarch, um, and he acts as the governing, the primary leader within the governing body. The bishop sits above what is called the General Convention, which consists of the House of Bishops and the House of Deputies. The House of Bishops includes current and retired bishops, while the House of Deputies uh, consists of elected clergy and laypeople. Underneath the General Convention is a similar structure to the Anglican model. You have the bishops, then you have rectors and congregations. So using this USA model, you can kind of get a picture of Anglicanism as a whole. It's an Anglican church and its leadership, its bishop is in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, but it runs its own province. In this case, you're talking the United States. Um, and so that's really what Anglican looks like globally. You have these different provinces around the world and they're all united by this communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury and 
they have succession from the bishops that came before them. In terms of sacraments and ordinances, the Anglican Church holds to seven sacraments, but with two being ordained by Christ that are generally necessary for salvation. Uh, these are called the sacraments of the gospel. As you can guess, it's baptism and communion. The other rites and institutions that are called sacraments will be mentioned in the distinctives below. For now, we're just going to say that the Anglican Church sees a sacrament as an outward reflection of an inward spiritual grace, and these are given to believers as a means of grace and assurance that they have indeed received the grace that each sacrament signifies. On baptism, the Anglican Church teaches that baptism is a sign of death to sin and new birth and righteousness, particularly a sign of union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which, to be honest, you'll find this in almost every denomination that we're going to talk about. Um, so that's really a point of unity. Everyone realizes that this is a sign of death to sin, new birth and righteousness being united with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which, to be honest, I mean, it's pretty clear in Scripture, right? I mean, if you read Romans 6, I don't know how you come away with anything different. Um, moving on, in Anglicanism, in baptism with faith and with the Holy Spirit, the baptized individual is considered a member of Christ's body and confirmed as an adopted child of God. The Anglican Church baptizes infants based on the notion that it is a sign of God's promise, that infants are embraced in the covenant community, and that those who baptize their infants do so with a vow to raise the child up in the Lord with hopeful expectation that the child will take a hold of faith on their own. The basis for this belief in infant baptism corresponds uh, baptism with circumcision in the Old Testament administered to men and infants and the continuity of God's commitment to offspring of parents within the covenant community. Um, and they'll cite texts like Acts 2.39, 1 Corinthians 7.13-14. And so there's this understanding that just as it was with circumcision where you are in the covenant and your children are included, uh, that's the way it goes with children underneath the new covenant. However, they must take a hold of their faith in due time. The responsibility of the parents, of course, is to raise up the child with the expectation that the child will take a hold of faith on their own. Now, in the 39 articles, Article 27 states that baptism is a sign of regeneration or the new birth, whereby, as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. Um, Packer notes that Anglicans differ on what baptismal regeneration, if held at all, looks like within Anglicanism. Uh, there are two ideas within Anglicanism on the matter. One posits that a relational change occurs, and this change does not necessitate the implanting of new life, but instead a reordering of attitude and actions, a life-changing process in and through Christ, decisive in its initial stage and moving towards perfection by what the church calls sanctification. Uh, and this is from an article uh, by J.I. Packer called Baptism and Regeneration. It's from 2013. If you look it up, it'll be there. I'll put these... Um, I'll put all my sources in the landing page as well for the podcast. The second type that he outlines is where regeneration is seen as an intrinsic change, where regeneration is a habit of grace that is instilled, which baptism infuses into or creates within each candidate. Thus, it conceives of regeneration as an intrinsic change in the human subject and that alone. Uh, developments occurred significantly on the subject of baptism for Anglicanism within the 18th and 19th century, creating a more diversity on the specifics of the sacrament. And J.I. Packer, in talking to the relational model, will say that regeneration is the work of God reshaping a person's life by creating with them multiple relationships of grace through faith. In infant baptism, we consecrate young children to God, commit them by proxy 
to thoroughgoing adult Christianity, ask God to bring this about, and administer to them God's own covenant sign, seal, and bond of this full adult relationship, believing that our actions accord with his will and that he is a faithful, loving, prayer-answering God. We trust that he has now received the children covenantally and in some way started the work in them that we have asked him to do. So we finally pray that these children will be led on from regeneration, thus being brought into the fullness of the faith and faithfulness. Nothing else surely would fit the situation or be honoring to God. So what is worth noting about baptism and Anglicanism is that it is seen as a marker or entrance into the covenant community, and children are, by extension of their parents or sponsor, considered a part of the covenantal blessing and thus to be baptized. With, of course, that vow from the parents or sponsor to raise them up in the faith so that they can take hold of the faith. And this is with prayerful expectation that they will come to faith in accordance with prayer and the promises of baptism. In this regard, because of their place within the community, they are Christian, being part of the spiritual royal family, but expected to grow into adult Christians and take a hold of that faith, right? Now, concerning the Eucharist, Anglicans hold that when communion is taken, the inward gift of the body and blood of Christ are, quote, truly taken and received, end quote, and this is received by faith. For Anglicanism, the Eucharist strengthens the soul, and it is a means of receiving God's forgiveness and renewing one's love for the church. Along with this, there are requirements to take communion, such as self-examination and confession. The 39 articles explicitly reject the position of transubstantiation held by Catholics. Article 28 states transubstantiation or the change of the substance of the bread and wine and the supper of the Lord cannot be proved by Holy Writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture overthroweth the nature of the sacrament and hath given occasion to many superstitions. Uh, in contrast to transubstantiation, the 39 articles states that the supper is only taken after a heavenly and spiritual manner. And while this is the position of the articles, its interpretation seems to differ among Anglicans. Um, on the spectrum, there seems to be some who hold more of a spiritualist memorial view akin to uh, Zwingli, while others tend to hold a Calvinistic view uh, back again to episode one on Calvin's view. And then there's also more of a sacramental union view, such as the Lutherans. I have also observed some Anglicans advocating for transubstantiation, but minus the categories of Aristotle to explain the how of the change. Nonetheless, the Anglican Church agrees, quote, that Christ is truly and substantially under the species of the bread and wine in the Eucharist. We disagree only on matters of semantics and language, and on the effort to define how the mystery takes place, end quote. And that is from St. Michael, the Archangel Anglican Church. Uh, it's an article written um, called Holy Eucharist Explained Within Anglican Thought and from 2019. Again, I'll link these in the description or the landing page. Another writer detailing the 39 articles emphasizes the 28th article excludes the change in the substance and instead supports a heavenly and spiritual change. The article reads, and this article is from Anglican Compass, What Do Anglicans Believe About Holy Communion? Quote, no one in that day believed that the bread and wine would physically look like flesh and blood, but the Roman church believed that God had replaced the substance or the reality of the bread and wine with the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, and that in this replacement, the priest offered Christ back to God and to the people as a sacrifice. The Reformation opposes belief, rejecting the idea that the bread and wine were substantially flesh and blood, but Anglicans, for the most part, were concerned not to give away too much, especially since it was Christ himself who picked up the bread and said, this is my body. So the solution was to affirm that the bread and wine are his body and blood in a spiritual manner, 
And then to qualify that, although the meal is heavenly or spiritual, it is nonetheless a true partaking in the body and blood of Christ, end quote. The article also goes on to point out that this is considered the real presence in what is occurring. It is real, it is objective, and it's assured by God. God is really present in this, and yet the how it occurs and the technicalities of what's occurring in the elements remains a mystery and is left to be received by faith. He says, quote, Anglicans have cherished a broad range of sentiments from near memorialism to consubstantiation while avoiding the overly technical theology of the Eucharist, end quote. So what are the distinctives, the distinctive section of the Anglican Church? Some of the distinctives will kind of bleed into the emphasis and will kind of be rehashed from what we've already discussed. Still, we can begin by stating that the Anglican Church, again, is distinct in that it's identified as a middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism. Additionally, in many cases, Anglicans will reluctantly take up that um, title of Protestant. This leads Anglicans, despite whichever emphasis they lean more towards, um, as viewing themselves as having the best of both worlds, particularly in liturgy and a high view of ecumenical declarations, and also Protestant doctrines and emphasis such as justification and preaching of scripture. Wesley Hill in his article, Is There an Anglican Understanding of the New Testament? will describe Anglicanism as the following. Anglicanism's chief glory is to present and embody the faith of the Catholic Church downwind of the Reformation with a robust understanding of justification by faith in tow in such a way that Anglicans may be confident that they are adhering to the same apostolic teaching and inhabiting the same ecclesiastical order as their earliest forebears in the faith did. We are distinctive precisely by aiming not to be distinctive. Our theology is a theology of the early church, the era of the fathers, the best of the medieval world, and the Reformation, all set decently on the table in our prayer book and other formulations, end quote. Along these same lines, a distinctive of the Anglican Church is its unity around the Book of Common Prayer, which again is highly revered by even those outside of the Anglican Church. This book is generally regarded as one of the most eloquent books in the English language, and it binds all Anglicans together. The Book of Common Prayer moved the Latin Catholic liturgy into a Protestant liturgy, and in fact, the Book of Common Prayer is sometimes used in other traditions when it comes to marriage rites and burial rites. An additional distinctive among Anglicanism is that they hold to other rites and institutions considered as sacraments, designated as sacraments of the church rather than sacraments of the gospel. These sacraments are the means of grace, but are distinct from those other two that we've already discussed. These consist of confirmation, ordination, marriage, absolution, and anointing of the sick. A final distinctive, but it's not the last, is the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. It serves as a guide for discussions across Christian traditions as a point of unifying doctrine. This quadrilateral consists of four points, obviously. First, the Catholic Creed. Second, the threefold apostolic ministry. Third, the authority of Scripture. And fourth, the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. This quadrilateral was adopted by the House of Bishops in Chicago in 1886, and the Anglican Church would follow in approving of it in 1888 at the Lambeth Conference, hence the name of the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. This document seeks to unify the church, and it claims that all who have been baptized in the Trinity are members of the Holy Catholic Church. It also puts aside preference uh, for the sake of unity, and that the church desires unity and cooperation rather than absorption. The main principles of unity for this quadrilateral are the following. One, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament as the revealed Word of God. Second, the Nicene Creed as the sufficient statement of the Christian faith. 
Three, the two sacraments, baptism and the supper of the Lord, ministered with unfailing use of Christ's words of institution and the elements ordained by him. Fourth, the historic episcopate, locally adapted in its methods of its administration to various needs of the nations and peoples called by God into the unity of his church. The document also says, Furthermore, deeply grieved by the sad division which affects the Christian church in our own land, we hereby declare that our desire and readiness, so soon as there shall be any authorized response to this declaration, to enter into brotherly conference with all or any Christian body seeking the restoration of the organic unity of the church, with a view to the earnest study of the conditions under which so priceless a blessing might happily be brought to pass. So the quadrilateral has those points of unity, that doesn't downplay differences. It doesn't um, lead to different organizations absorbing one another and losing those distinctives, but instead has a cooperative element to it where um, individuals are in communion and working with one another alongside in the world. And so whenever it comes to emphasis, the emphasis for the Anglican Church is the notion of being a reformed Catholic Church and adopting a high view of the sacraments, liturgy, and the Episcopal model of polity. The church embraces all of its Catholic roots while holding to reform on various matters such as preaching and justification by faith, which gives it room for being Protestant in that sense. Anglicanism seems emphatic on the unity surrounding those four points that we mentioned above, the Catholic Creed, the threefold apostolic ministry, the authority of scripture, and the sacraments of baptism in the Eucharist, while allowing for a great deal of diversity within its ranks. That said, there are more high church and more Catholic-esque Anglican branches on the spectrum, and there are also more low church or reformed or even evangelical Anglican branches. Many, however, find themselves trying to strike the balance between the two. The structure of Anglicanism lets there be a diverse number of views and differences with a central point of unity. So where are divergences? Now, tracing divergences in Anglicanism is kind of difficult because of its structure, operation, and diversity. If I'm honest with you, I find the the model in general to be a little bit confusing, but recent trends seem to be pushing the Anglican communion via Anglo-Catholic traditionalists to be more conservative, while parishes within the UK, the US, Canada, and Australia have a high chances of being more on the liberal end of the spectrum, while those within the Southern Hemisphere, such as Latin America, Africa, and South Asia, tend to be more conservative at this current time. It's also worth pointing out that... Um, it can be kind of difficult to talk about this because Anglican and Episcopalian can be used interchangeably, blurring those lines between, well, we're talking about the Episcopal Church proper in the United States and the Anglican offshoots in America, right? Um, because there are some Anglican offshoots in America that are not the Episcopal Church. Uh, you can look at the U.S. Handbook of Denominations edited by Roger Olson for a list of those and discussions on those. Theologically, the Anglican Church's core is rooted and grounded in conservatism, giving it stress on historical continuity. Socially or politically, which are theological issues, but we're not talking the theological core, it's a little bit more diverse in terms of whether or not we're talking more conservative or more liberal. Um, from an American standpoint, the most notable deviant from conservative ideas is the Episcopal Church in America. The Episcopal Church would go on to have several splits due to various changes in the 60s from the various social movements, but it took ground really at the General Convention at 1976. In 1976, the priesthood was extended to women along with men, with the first female bishop being put in place in 1989. And the tensions really progressed through the 21st century, and it would open up the door 
for more contention as the church appointed an openly homosexual man as a bishop in 2003 with this new pattern of ordaining homosexuals and blessing uh, homosexual unions. This solidified other schisms and breakoffs and offshoots in America. The offshoots, as far as I've been able to ascertain, have not taken place of the Episcopal Church's place in the Anglican Communion. And the Anglican Communion, or what's going on in the Church of England, is also more on the liberal side too, which kind of checks out. If I'm mistaken on that, let me know. But whenever I was actually reading the news yesterday, there was another um, more socially liberal event occurring within the Anglican Church. That all said, there is a current resurgent in Anglicanism for a more conservative historical emphasis. And so the discussions are really lively. There's a push for going back to those traditional conservative values. Um, the gospel collation, uh, regardless of how you feel about them, they still have some good stuff. I know they're kind of hit or miss. They, they're kind of weird sometimes. But they still have some good stuff, and they have a number of great articles on Anglicanism that may be worthy of investigating as you look into those current issues. But I think that that's really going to wrap up our episode on Anglicanism. If you are an Anglican or an Episcopalian, I hope I did your tradition justice. I did my best. Um, and next week we'll talk about a group that came out of Anglicanism. We're going to talk about the Methodists. So God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. <laughs>